Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for this word. We believe that it's completely true. We believe that you have inspired it, that you breathed it into men over centuries to write. And because we believe it's completely from you, we believe that it's sufficient. We believe that it tells us everything that we need to know for life and godliness and salvation. We believe that this word has the power to save and transform and make alive hearts that are dead when the Holy Spirit comes and brings that word to our hearts. And we also believe that your word has all authority. And so, Lord, we put ourselves under this word. We don't stand in judgment over it, but we, we humble ourselves underneath your holy word. Help us now think about the things that were written centuries ago by this, this obscure prophet named Habakkuk. I pray, Lord, today that you would encourage your people, those that have already trusted in Jesus. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray, Lord, for those that are in this room that have not yet believed in Jesus, that have not yet placed the hope of their future and the hope of their right standing with the creator of the universe in what Christ has done on the cross. I pray that today, Lord, you might give them the gift of faith and repentance so that they can do that. I pray that you would do these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people and for the salvation of the lost. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just again, a bit of a summary. Just, in fact, I, you may ask, why do we do this? Why do we kind of summarize? And, you know, we find ourselves here in Habakkuk chapter 3. And the reason why it just kind of hit home to me again, just right before I walked into the sanctuary, is before the service began, I met this young soldier who was here for the first time and I imagine there may be many of you that are here for the first time and we're just kind of parachuting down into Habakkuk chapter 3. And so let me just kind of give you a little bit of a backdrop of the scene that we're in here in Habakkuk. First of all, we know that the whole Old Testament is the story of God's creation and then his creating not only the world and the universe and Adam and Eve, but also a special people for himself through this man Abraham. And this people were not just going to be God's people alone forever, but then it was through this people that God desired to make his way and his power known to all the earth. And so God begins to work through one nation. He forms a nation through Abraham. This nation then rebels against God. They eventually find themselves in captivity and slavery in Egypt, and God saves them from Egypt through Moses by parting the Red Sea and then causing them to come out of, even as Robert read this morning that God has caused us, if we are Christians, to be born again in the same way God caused his people to be rescued from captivity. In fact, the whole Old Testament is, in one sense, a picture of salvation and God's faithfulness to his people. And so God saves Israel from captivity, and they wander in the desert, and and that's kind of a picture of our sanctification, where even though we've been saved, we're still kind of not where God wants us to be. And, and then God finally brings them into this promised land. But still there's work to be done because the land that he had promised them is filled with 
all these foreign people with foreign gods, and so they have to, have to purge out all of these foreign gods and idols and peoples, and, and that's what much of the Old Testament is about in the book of Joshua and Judges. And, and then there's this time of kings where God gives his people kings, and they then uh, don't really lead God's people like they should. In fact, there's about 43 kings in the Old Testament of God's people, and Early on in that process, the kingdom divides into the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. And so for much of the Old Testament, God's people are divided in a sense. And they're ruled by these kings, most of whom are very, very bad kings. And who lead God's people into idolatry and wickedness and sin. And where we are in Habakkuk is the end of this time of the kings, toward the end of the Old Testament timeline. And that's really kind of close to where the Old Testament ends. And what's happening here is God is giving prophets. In fact, all of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're all prophesying to God's people, either the northern kingdoms or the southern kingdoms, about their unfaithfulness to come back to God. And Habakkuk is one of the prophets that is speaking to God's people. In this sense, specifically, the southern tribes of Judah And he is warning them about how he is going to punish them for their idolatry and sinfulness. And so the situation is, at the beginning of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is a a man who is a a citizen of Judah, and he is being raised up by God to pray to God that God would hear his prayer because the people of God are unrighteous. They're full of sin. They're full of idolatry. And this is bothering Habakkuk. And he's saying, God, we, we are... We're so unrighteous. Would you save us? Would you revive us? Would you, would you maybe cause a, a king, a good king, to come and, and, and lead us back into faithfulness? And God says to Habakkuk, he says, oh, I'll answer your prayer. But here's how I'm going to answer your prayer, Habakkuk. I'm going to raise up these Babylonians or Chaldeans, same people group, just two different words and two different versions of the Bible. The Chaldeans, I'm going to raise up these enemies and they're going to come smash you. In fact, they're going to come take you away into captivity. It's not the way Habakkuk wanted the prayer to be answered. It'd be like us. I've said this last couple of weeks. It'd be like us in America saying, God, would you, would you restore America to righteousness? Would you raise up a leader in America to restore us? And it's, it was if God would say to you, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to your prayer, but here's how I'm going to answer it. I'm going to raise up an enemy, North Korea or Iran or Al-Qaeda, to come and conquer you. Not exactly the answer that Habakkuk was expecting. But then God says, I'm not going to leave you alone, even though I'm going to use these wicked people to bring about my purifying means on my people. I'm then going to punish these people so you can know and trust in God, Habakkuk, that even though I am going to, in a sense, punish my people with this foreign people, I'm going to punish them as well. So we ended last week by realizing that God is just. He punishes all unrighteousness, and the good news of of the cross, the good news of the full revelation of the Bible that we now have as the benefit of walking in the new covenant is that we realize that God punishes all sin on the cross, and that we are either in Christ or we are out of Christ, and that when we are in Christ, when we are trusting in Jesus and his perfect life and his death on the cross, then the punishment that should have been ours, the woe that should have been ours, is not on us, but it is on Jesus who has once and for all satisfied it and turned it into God's favor and grace toward us. And now in Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk 
is praying to God as he's waiting for God to do what he's promised to do, to vindicate his people. And he has this vision of the faithfulness of God in the history of Israel. So what Habakkuk is going to do is he's going to pray, and then he, in his prayer, is going to, in a sense, retell the story of the Old Testament of how God has saved his people from captivity in Egypt. And so that's where we are today. So let me read, and then we've got just three quick points to make. Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Now, Shigianoth is not the name of a person. It's probably a type of psalm or a type of song or maybe even a musical instrument. I wish it was the name of a person because that would be an awesome name to recommend to one of the people that just had a baby this week at doctor's hospital. <laughs> What's your name, son? Shiggy. Uh, admittedly I went to one of those little Bible audio programs to kind of see how they pronounced it Shigianoth a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth verse 2 O Lord I have heard the report of you and your work O Lord do I fear in the midst of the years revive it in the midst of the years make it known in wrath Remember mercy. So what Habakkuk is saying here in his prayer, he says, God, I've heard about how you have acted on behalf of your people, my people, in years past, when you rescued us from Egypt, when you rescued us from wandering in the desert, when you rescued us and caused us to pass across the Jordan River. I've heard of those things, Lord. Do it again. Verse 3, now he begins to recount these these saving acts of God. Listen to this. We don't talk like this in our modern day prayer. Just, just sort of listen to the beauty and the God-centeredness of Habakkuk's words here. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He's recounting, he's thinking very likely of the plagues that God sent to Egypt to cause Pharaoh to let his people go. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in, in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? There he's very likely thinking of when God, remember, turned the Nile into blood. And then when he caused his people to passed through the Jordan River, and then even bigger than that, when, he, when he, his people rode their chariots through the Red Sea. Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Very likely, he's thinking about that time in Joshua chapter 10 
after God had caused the people to pass through the Jordan River, and then Joshua was expelling the enemies from the Promised Land, and there was this time when literally God caused the sun to stand still to give Joshua more time to vanquish the enemy. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Verse 13 is so beautiful. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And all of this brings, okay, so what's happened here in verses 8 through 15 is Habakkuk has remembered in a sense a vision of the power and the awesome might of a God who saves. And, and saves not in sort of the way we typically think about it in American sort of comfortable church, sort of coloring sheet sort of world, you know, flannel graph and, you know, no. I mean, God saves in a powerful, mighty, terrible dreadful way where he brings his power and vanquishes his enemies. And, and this doesn't leave Habakkuk sort of proud and arrogant and ha ha ha, I'm one of God's people. This leaves Habakkuk utterly humbled and silent. Listen to verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And then he finishes with, I'm sure, words that may be familiar to you. Some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. Verses 17, 18, and 19. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Well, there's three things that I think we can draw out of this. And there's, friends, there's so much in this book. There's so much in this chapter. It is so rich with meditation. But there's three things that I want us to think about. The first is that we, we can and we are to trust God in community. We can trust God. In fact, that's the whole context of Habakkuk's prayer. He says in verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. See, Habakkuk was not alive when God was doing all of these great things for his people that he is now recounting in his prayer or in his vision. But Habakkuk trusted in God because he heard of God's goodness to his people through his people. Friends, we, we are, I think we need to understand how we are so bent towards individualism. I mean, that's just the air we breathe in America, right? 
I mean, we just, I mean, anytime anything happens, man, the first cry of the American citizen is, I've got my rights. I mean, we have a whole governmental system built out on protecting the individual. And I'm not, I'm not listen, I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily for how to do government. I, I mean, I'm glad I live in America. Don't, don't get me wrong. But do you realize how when the air we breathe is towards protecting and, and sort of establishing our own rights, how when we bring this into it, it causes us to just sort of go through life as like individuals. And, and, and Habakkuk is saying that he has heard from God's people in community stories of the goodness of God. We learn and are encouraged by being around each other. When when we're around each other in community, and by that I mean more than just kind of coming to be in the same room for a couple hours on a Sunday, but when we, when we do life together, when we open ourselves up to relationship with one another, we, we see the gospel rehearsed and applied as we come in close proximity with one another and hear each other's stories of God's goodness. In fact, that's why, that's why it's so good to have the kids in here today, and that's why it's so important what we do on that hallway and in children's ministry. Do you realize that what people are doing is they're they're telling the coming generation? Listen, listen to this, listen to this beautiful psalm, Psalm 78. No need to flip there. Just listen to me read Psalm 78 about the importance of community, especially in what we do with instructing our children. Habakkuk was a little boy that heard these words, and now in his time of distress, he's remembering what he learned. Psalm 78, verse 1, it says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, the things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders, the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God keep his commandments. Friends, do you realize what, what an awesome responsibility it is? I mean, I mean just, just as a little aside here, and I'm not, I'm not getting manipulative here, and this isn't some sort of strange little guilt trip to say you should work in children's ministry, but do you see how this just underscores the absolute beauty and primacy and importance of, of what goes on in our children's rooms and in our living rooms and at the bedsides of our children when we're reading scripture to them and praying to them and teaching them in kids' church and in the nursery? I mean, do you realize how, how absolutely critical that is? That's how Habakkuk learned about God because one generation commended his ways to another. And, and so how, how important it is, is it for us to be a community that is just saturated and absorbed with God-centeredness in our speech and everything we do? I, I was just so encouraged a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a young soldier who's here at Fort Benning for just a, a few months, and he was just thanking me, although I didn't have anything to do with it. He was just thanking me for just the community of Crosspoint. And he says, you know, even the first day when I came here, just hearing the conversations of the people in the foyer encouraged me. It was God-centered. And that, that was very encouraging to me. And friends, I'm not saying we've got to be these goofy people that can't, like, ever talk about the game. 
You know what I mean? I mean, don't, we don't need to be that guy, you know, or that girl. You know, it's kind of, sometimes people are just a little too kind of goofy, weird spiritual for you. And like, hey, man, you know, it's raining outside. Can we acknowledge that? Or, you know, <laughs> or how you doing? Huh? But, but, but I think what he was saying was there's this, there's this sort of posture of the people here that is such an encouragement to me because they're like God seems to be the center of gravity for them. You know? And, and what that does is it creates a sort of atmosphere, it creates a sort of culture where people, even in their casual conversations, e- even in their interactions, e- even in their conversations about the game or about the team or about the whatever, it all just kind of circles back around to the faithfulness of a God for whom we were created and by whom we were created and by whom we were saved for his glory and our joy. It's like, it's like a tether, you know? It's like tether ball. It's like that, is that tether ball that you play, you know? That, you know what I'm talking about, that ball that's on a string and I don't know, we played it out west. Do you guys do this here in Georgia? All right, okay. Tether ball, you hit it, I never really got it. But anyway, the ball is tethered to the pole, to the anchor. And, and it can go around and around, and you can hit it as hard as you can, but the anchor, the tether holds because it's connected to something that gives it its place in this world. You see that? And, and that's, what, that's what a community can do even as we worship together, and even as we get to know one another, and even as we get involved in community groups with each other, we, we tether ourselves to the faithfulness of God. That's what we do. And if you're not, friends, again, if you're not in community, if you're just sort of here in the periphery, I, I, I beg you to expose your life because there's something in you that can encourage a, a brother or sister here and, and there's something in their lives that can encourage you. And friends, if you've got this sort of strange notion that, that oh gosh, if people really get to know me, then they'll find out who, well, guess what? We're all train wrecks, man. Ask Reynolds, I'm a train wreck. He's a train wreck too. We're all train wrecks. I mean, that's what we are, man. We're trophies of God's grace. Do you see that? We can trust God in community. The second thing that I think this vision of Habakkuk teaches us is that we, and this, friends, I think this is the heart of it here, is that we are to trust God by remembering what he has done to save his people. Habakkuk remembers what God did to save his people primarily from Egypt and then out of wandering in the desert. And then he views his, his, his current situation in light of that. You see, so he remembers this time when God really acted on behalf of his people. And then he views everything sort of underneath that. It's kind of like, you know, if you've been through some very difficult thing and you kind of made it through, you sort of reflect back to that experience. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, you young soldiers know what I'm talking about. I mean, if you've been through that, if you got through that firefight, if you got through that training, you know you can keep your head in the midst of this situation because you're reflecting back to that time when you really got through it. Well, that's what Habakkuk is doing here. He's reflecting on when God saved his people from Egypt in a situation where they had no business getting out of it on their own. And he says, if God did that, he will still be good to his people. And, and, and so what is that application for us, friends? Here's, here's the beauty of being born in this day and age, we have the benefit now of not looking just back to what God has done 
for Israel and his people through the Red Sea or Egypt. But we have the benefit of looking back to the thing to which the whole Old Testament is pointing to, and that's God's saving and final act of Jesus' work on the cross. You see, that's the benefit that we have that Habakkuk didn't have, because we're born in this age. We're not looking back to certain specific acts of, of God defeating some enemy in battle. We're looking back to that one great act of God in defeating death and sin on the cross. Go to Romans chapter 8. I think it can't be said any better than this. I think, as you've heard me say many times, I think Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. I think it is... uh, some of the most beautiful words in the scriptures. Listen to what Paul says about what a Christian's perspective should be in light of their current situation. In fact, that's what he speaks about in Romans chapter 8, 18 through 30. I won't read it, but he's talking about our present sufferings and how because of what God has done on the cross, fully and finally in Jesus. We can now view everything in light of that. And so like Habakkuk, we can trust God by remembering what he has done to save his people. Listen to Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, the logic that's behind verse 33 is is one of the keys to the Christian life. What, What Paul is saying there is he's saying if he has taken and he has given and he has purchased you with the most precious thing, which is the life of his son, then how will he not also continue in keeping you his own? Do you see that? So so again, you, you put everything in light of what God has done in Christ for you if you are trusting in Christ. Verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, so what he's saying is is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus anymore because you didn't die for yourself. Our Our imperfection, our sinfulness, we didn't pay the price. Jesus paid the price and extinguished it. Therefore, that price and that payment is full and final. There's no more change. There's no tax. There's no installments. There's no loan. There's no amortization table. It's done because the perfect one has paid the price, and there's nothing more to say. The accusation isn't now on us and our ridiculous little pathetic lives. What has been bought for us is our salvation by the perfect one who could not be accused. You see, what's on the line is not our righteousness, but Christ's, which is perfect. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, 
or if you're Habakkuk, or the Chaldeans, or whatever thing, or insert your situation, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you, do you hear that? He's saying that, listen, not, nothing, nothing, no, no enemy, no sin, no distress, no trial can come between you and Jesus. But listen to what he's not saying. And I think this is one of the things that many people in the church today uh, misunderstand. He is not saying that because Jesus is your ransom, because Jesus is your Savior, that you're necessarily going to be delivered out of every trial here and now. And that's not what he was saying to Habakkuk. He, he's not saying that, well, because you are now recounting the way I saved your people in days of old in Egypt, now that you've remembered that, now that you've confessed that, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make everything okay for you. And what Paul is saying here is he's not saying, well, now that you remember what Jesus has done for you, now here in the balance of your life, for these next 40 or 50 or 60 years, now, yeah, because you've, because you've got that little part right now, I'm going to make everything go okay for you. No, he says, even though we're being killed. And so what does this mean? Does it mean that God forsakes his people? No, it means that life must be more than just these 80 or 90 years. I've taken some flack from people because, you know, I have this saying, it just kind of developed it, you know, the, I always say these 80 years, and some people came to me and said, Brad, we're in our 80s, can you bump that up a little bit? <laughs> when Crosspoint started out, Jennifer and I were the oldest people in the church seven years ago, and you guys were all under 30, um, now, now some of you are octogenarians or whatever they're called, and so let's call it 90, let's call it these 100 years, just so I get everybody. But do you see what Paul is saying there, and do you, you see, what the gospel is telling us is that that must mean that God's saving power, God's purposes in saving us, go beyond this temporal life. And in fact, God may in his sovereign goodness send things to cause us to detach our hands from the things of this earth so that we might attach our hands to himself, as J.I. Packer says. In fact, it might be in his kind providence to wean us and woo us from this earth so that we might point towards what is true reality and true life, which is life with him forever and ever and ever. And friends, I realize that is not a popular message because we want... We've bought into this lie preached by false prophets that we are in this for our best life now. Friends, that is a lie. And don't read or listen to false preachers who preach that message. We can trust God by remembering what he has done to save his people and to save us. The question begs then, friends, has he saved you? Are you in Christ? Friends, Romans 8, chapter... Chapter 8, verses 31-39 is not a universal application. It only applies to those who are trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross for their right standing with God. Don't, don't walk in here and just be motivated by, by, by my words. 
don't let them become a sort of false assurance to you that just because you came here and because maybe you give some sort of emotional agreement to that, that you're okay, friends. That's not what it means to be a Christian. That's not what it means to have these verses apply to you. The Bible is clear that these verses apply to those who have turned away from trusting in their own righteousness and who are trusting in what Christ has done in his perfect life and in his sacrificial, sufficient death for his people alone. And that's it, trusting in Christ. Is that where your hope is? Is that where your trust is? If it's not even now, even now, right now, turn away from trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus even now. Look to him. The third and final point. The first is that we're to trust God in community. The second is that we're to trust God by remembering what he has done to save his people. And then we are to trust God because he alone can satisfy. Look again at verses 17, 18, and 19 of Habakkuk chapter 3. This is really important. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So, so take verse 17 and just kind of write your own script there. Right? I, I doubt that any of you are um, fig tree farmers or cattle ranchers, although that could be <laughs> the case. If that's you, awesome. This really applies to you. <laughs> but I think most of you are stay-at-home moms or soldiers in the army or businessmen or students. So, so what does it look like for you, for your fig tree to not blossom or for your life to not be fruitful, or for things not to go your way in the temporal. And then here's the truth there, verse 18. Habakkuk says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And so I think, again, what this truth here is that Habakkuk is telling us that we can trust God because he alone can satisfy. In a sense, in a very real sense, affliction and trial and what Habakkuk was going through actually served to wean Habakkuk from this world. Because now, now think about the change in Habakkuk in these three chapters. Habakkuk has gone from chapter one of questioning God, complaining to God, because the temporal situation isn't like he wants it to be, to now at the end of the book, being satisfied in God, regardless of whether or not the temporal situation is like he wants it to be. Just take note of that transformation. Habakkuk is actually now being served by the circumstance because it has caused him to reorient his life away from the current situation and the temporal setting of his life to what true, true blessing is. Habakkuk learned that God is not the means to an end, but is, in fact, the means and the end for which he was created. This is what 
Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian and pastor, maybe the greatest mind in American history, greatest theological mind in American history, a very deep man. Some of his writings are very difficult to read. In fact, um, after serving his congregation up in the New England area for couple decades, he actually got fired by them over a theological controversy. Kind of comforting. I hope you guys never fire me. Um, but if it ever happens, uh, you know, me and Johnny E. will have a little something in common. This is what Jonathan Edwards writes about God being not the means to an end, but being the, the end, the object. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper. That's old English. It's kind of saying the enjoyment of him is, the, is, is our own and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. Not friends that these things are bad, but friends, God doesn't save us for those things. No, he goes on to say, these are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. And what Edwards is saying there is that beyond any blessing that God may give us here in this life, that God alone can satisfy us. He's saying there, he's really expanding what Habakkuk is saying there, is that I will take joy not in what God gives me, not, not in the fact that my sins have been forgiven, not in the fact that things are going to go okay for me for the balance of my life, but I will take joy in God. Now, friends, I'm going to end it with this. I confess I rarely think that way. I mean, we, we can kind of all, I mean, we're all going to agree with that because Edward said it and, you know, it sounds right, right? I mean, who's going to say, no, I disagree. But, but here's the deal. We can go away agreeing with this, but we can never really, like, connect with it. You know what I mean? I mean, we can, okay, okay, Grad, that's a, that's a great little lofty pro- quote that you read us. Thank you, but how does that help me? And I, I'm with you, man. I mean, I just began to think about this quote as I was reading it this week, and I'm like, oh, that's so good, but, oh, that's, that's so often, like, not my experience, Right? I mean, so often, I let life just zoom me into this, this moment where I need God to do this. And I just get off of enjoying God. In fact, I think sometimes I wonder, like, how often do I really think about God and how good He is and how glory and pleasure flows from the Creator to His people. And so I, I confess to you that I, I agree with what Edwards has said here because I think it's biblical. And I, I understand what Habakkuk is saying here about taking joy in God, but friends, I, I so often am not there. What does that mean? I think it means to 
quiet our hearts for just a moment, even now in a few moments, and to even wrestle with God along those lines and ask that question, God, where's my joy? What am I misplacing my affections in? And God, what does it mean to delight in you? What does it mean to measure myself, not by the opinion of man, by the temporal success of my future, but to enjoy God? What does that mean? To behold beauty. I mean, to go to the edge of the Grand Canyon and to just say, oh, wow. <laughs> Last night was Jennifer's high school reunion. Won't say which. It was after, it was not her five-year high school reunion. It was sometime subsequent to that. But it just reminded me about even the first time I was a young lieutenant going through Fort Benning, and I met her, saw her for the first time. You know, just to behold beauty, even in this form of a woman who I sensed would play a rather significant role in my future, <laughs> even that first time. To, to like go to the hospital this week and to watch three or four babies be born and just to look at a little baby and like there's some, I, you know, there's, there's just some enjoyment. Like you, you, look at, you look at something that's just beautiful and it, it, it's it, like it satisfies you. Like when you're looking at a newborn baby, like I don't need to be I don't need to tell everybody what a great athlete I was back in high school anymore. You know what I mean? And, and, I, and when I'm looking into the face of something, even that's a shadow of God's beauty, I, I don't need to measure myself by the size of the church or the success of the last sermon or the, 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 you, you know, the, the faithful, the, the success of my 401k or the, or the whatever. Do you, do you see that? When you behold something that's beautiful, it, it, it like it's, it brings joy. It brings joy. Like it, it satisfies. Like you, you're, not, you're not prone to just go wreck your life in some counterfeit pleasure when you're looking at a newborn baby. Like you're not tempted to wreck your life. Like, like nobody looks at a newborn baby while they're thinking of pornography. No, nobody looks at a beautiful woman and, and, and just thinks about just wrecking their life. Nobody does that because it's an echo. It's a shadow of beauty which only comes from God which is alone what can satisfy our souls. And what I think all of these things, the Grand Canyon, my wife when I looked at her for the first time, these four babies in the hospital, everything that's beautiful is pointing us and pointing us and nudging us away from this earth to the only one that can satisfy. And I, I don't know exactly what it looks like. I'm not sure exactly how we do it, but I know this, that when we stare long enough into the face of the glory of Christ, our souls begin to revel, to take joy in, to be satisfied in the God of our salvation, friends. That, that's, that's what Habakkuk is saying. And so, so let's do that. Like, let's do that right now. The guys are going to come back and, and sing some songs. And I'm not saying that the only time we can do that is after a message and during some songs. But, like, what does that look like in your life? And I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to just make application. Say, God, I want to I stare into the face of the glory of Christ. And I want to rejoice in the God of my salvation. And I want everything else 
to dim in light of that. It makes me think of that, that song that we sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, for people in this room who have never looked into the face of the glory and the goodness and the satisfaction that is in Christ God, today would they look away from themselves? Would they look away from broken, counterfeit pleasure? Would they look away from their own morality, their own righteousness? Would they look away from their own pain? And would they look to you, God? And would you help me do that afresh, God? Because I am so prone to wander. And would you help us look and see your beauty today and worship you and find satisfaction in that alone. Help us, Lord. Help us do this. We need your help. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.